1: I can't go on. Hi, folks. I'm Alan Watts, and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on March the 23rd, 2012. For newcomers, as always, help yourself to the website CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com, and you'll find there's over a 1,000 audios for a free download there. And hopefully, if you can wade through some of them at least, You'll start to understand the system into which you've been born and raised and conditioned, not to suit you or help you on your, your, your life and career or whatever, but actually to make sure that you conform to a manageable society. And the world you're, you're going through today is full of massive changes because it's all coming together with the rest of the plan, of course, the world government idea, uh, the sustainable living, which is really getting the public to believe in something so that they'll uh, accept living in poverty down the road. So I have to the audios and so on. I I talk about the plan, the big plan, the big foundations, that front for the the international banking boys who set them up as tax uh, havens, or reliefs, in a sense, or write-offs. And they finance thousands of non-governmental organizations and all the think tanks that, that now work with all the governments. They own them, basically. So we're living through a planned system, planned society, uh, where the few at the top, of course, live on the backs of the rest at the bottom, and they're training the public to accept it, and it's a good thing, you see, because it's for the benefit of all and all that usual rubbish. But anyway, help yourself to that. Remember, too, you are the audience that bring me to you. You can keep me going by buying the books and this cutting through thematrix.com. And from the U.S. to Canada, you can use a personal check or an international postal money order, You can send cash, or you can use PayPal to order. Remember, straight donations are really, really welcome because I don't bring on advertisers as guests. I'm not flogging any products that will make you live till 190, Um, and I don't have shares in any uh, products that are manufactured either. So it's it's truly independent. But as I say, you can keep me going if you buy these uh, books I have at cutting And across the rest of the world, I've got Western Union to order, uh, with uh, MoneyGram or PayPal, once again, and straight donations are welcome. What I do is go through the history of the big, the big idea really that they came up with a long time ago. You understand, in the 1800s, they tried all kinds of ways to via revolution, lots of different techniques. To establish a particular system, and and whatever become or whoever becomes the elite always graduate up there, and the next thing you know, you've got their sons and daughters working there, and then their grandchildren, and that, that went through. Eden Jefferson talked about that with uh, after America America won its war for independence, basically. He said they should got to stop this at the beginning, and it didn't work right off the bat. Some of them were getting their own nephews in. Franklin tried to get his son in, his son called Temple, in as well. So th- this is inevitable. always happens. And um, you end up with a, an upper aristocracy running the show forever until they're kicked out. So the big boys who run the international banks weren't concentrating on just one country because they're international bankers from all over the world and with a history of wandering over the world, too, and studying cultures, etc. So they came up with something that would last and possibly forever. That's why Huxley talked about it too, that a scientific-run dictatorship could could last forever. It couldn't be overthrown. The public wouldn't even really understand or even think of overthrowing it. And it's, this, is, this is where we are today with this whole system, as I say, that is set up at the beginning, or the late 1800s and the beginning of the 1900s, through their foundations and through their private uh, organizations that now are totally... Um, in bed with government. In fact, they run the government, and they put their own boys in as presidents and prime ministers, for goodness sake. And they've done that for a hundred years. So, we're ruled by a scientific dictatorship. We'll touch on that tonight. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, I'm back, cutting through the matrix and and talking about how we're, we're really governed, if we to call it governed, we're actually managed but uh, uniformity of governance is awfully important in a totalitarian system and of, of course the big boys at the top have been working for an awful long time for the single world's government with a, with a standard single education for everyone, at the bottom that is a separate one, of course, for those children at the top. And um, they're, they're pretty well here with it. And that's why so much push was went into, into technology and Internet, uh, and, and all of that to do with the Internet. Total uh, awareness and so on of everyone at all times of the day. Every individual across the planet. Must, it's essential. And that's why people like Aldous Huxley and his Brave New World Revisited which he also quoted from at his Berkeley speech, he said that uh, basically this can happen and it will happen, and uh, a, a scientific elite technically will run the world. And it's done through electricity, of course, because they're all elect at the top. And it certainly is a trick as well. But anyway, they, they have done it all. It's all here. And the public have no idea, as they play themselves on their gadgets, uh, that uh, it's not there so that they can be happy playing away. It serves that purpose. It keeps them distracted. But it really is there to monitor everything that they do. Because the elites, as Orwell said from from his book that I read the other day, must know what you're thinking every minute of the day. And because they've never had that in the past, you see, they used to get overthrown once in a while. It It can't happen now. They know what everybody's up to. That's why you can't get a real terrorist attack coming in that they don't know about already. You can't keep anything secret, including the terrorists. It's impossible. So what's interesting to me is searching the government websites and to see this everywhere, so in mainstream news and so on, just a little bit getting you used to the idea. But uh, this article is called Chief Information Officers. It's all over Britain too. Every country's got them. They're all the same. And they all work with each other across the world. Chief Information Officers Council, and so they call it CIOs, you see. Uh, they decide uh, what information technologies are going to be used uh, across the board, and how they all interact with everybody else's. But it's more than that. You see, once you understand information from coming from the top, uh, who's running your governments? The technocrats who run all the, the, the gadgetry for the governments, uh, or, or the politicians themselves? Well, it's broken down into a dominant minority that own the governments, and, and the ones who own governments are the big uh, foundations, like the Royal Institute of International Affairs that was consisted, consisted primarily at the top the inner circle of international bankers that set it up a long time ago. And they have all their media boys, traditionally being in the newspapers and in magazines, giving us all our thoughts and opinions for 100 years. Uh, and, but now they've gone into uh, the technology sector, and they've captured it all, and governments are using that. So that's uniformity of opinion, you understand. is so important in a totalitarian system. And when you have federal governments interacting with all its local governments and state governments, provincial governments, uh, right down to your, your little local one at the bottom, you're getting standard agendas pushed at the same time across not just your country, but the whole planet. And that's an awful lot of power because they're telling the schools what to teach, you know, low carbon dioxide, all that stuff, and austerity, save the planet. Uh, they're teaching us all to the poisonous food that we're left with at the bottom. And anything else we disagree with, uh, they're immediately on, on board to work out a way to, a propaganda to, to push down to the public, through again, through schooling or whatever, mass publicity can be. So it's an incredibly, incredibly powerful technique this never had been here before. Prior to this the printing press, of course, uh turned out all kinds of stuff. All kinds of stuff. And um the printing press definitely was responsible for, for revolutions in the past. Many kinds of revolutions, in fact. Uh one of them being that people for the first time got access to, to to uh really good uh, books uh with, with good historical data in them. Uh, that was subverted over the years, of course, and a lot of that's eliminated now down the memory hole as it we went electronic. But um, now we're into the system, now as I say, where government with the technocrats. This uh, is exactly as Aldous Huxley said, and he knew because he was at world meetings, and his brother, uh, Julian Huxley, was up at the United Nations uh, working on the system. So he knew what was going on. But this site I put up tonight, I put a few sites up actually, one's called Chief Information Officers Council, CIO Council, People and Organization, right? And you gotta understand what information means. Every country has a department of information, just like Orwell had in 1984. And these big boys decide what information the public are going to get, even if half of it is lies, or three quarters, or definitely spun. Uh, but this, here I was in, is in the open, and it says the uh, CIO council, the people and organization, and it says uh, fostering interagency collaboration as a principal interagency forum on federal IT. Information technology, the CIO Council's vision is to improve how government information resources are managed by increasing the efficiency, it says, and cutting costs. Well, that part doesn't matter, that's just for us. CIO Council committees share experiences, ideas, best practices, and innovative approaches to develop policy recommendations for the Office of Management and Budget. And it talks about the Council, lots of links on it. And is the purpose of the yeah, CI Council is to foster collaboration, blah blah blah, amongst other government chief information officers in strengthening government made internet technology management practices. And people and organizations that liaise with other organizations, etc. And committees, lots of committees. People who are all these people are an elected member that's running your governments now. <laughs> the, the, the punch and Judy shows of the, the, the two opposition parties are just that. They're the punch and duty shows they have been for quite some time. And then you go on to this one. It's got the 50 most influential government CIOs and gives you their names. It's, they're running America. Starting with General Keith Alexander, director of the NSA and commander, U.S. Cyber Command. So here's the NSA uh, responsible for... Uh, really, all government information. NSA com- commander, U.S. Cyber Command. And um, it gives you 50 other top members as well. You'd be surprised who they are, actually. And another link is very similar. The government CIO is 50 vision, influence, and results. The top IT executives in federal, state, and local government are using new technologies and hands-on projects management to drive change, to drive change, in the public sector. Well, you see, folks, you are the public sector. So all of this, all this technology, all of these massive marketing campaigns, because marketers are are all part of this new technocratic system. You see, they understand the human mind better than anything else and how they motivate you. And so they're on board with it too. And again, it's got... uh, Here's one, for instance, it says, webcasts, single source of truth for managing critical assets applications. So it's a single source of truth, they claim, you know, for, for, as an example. And selecting the right solutions for big data analytics and so on. And how to to, to regain IT control in an increasingly mobile worlds. There must always be control and be Uh, not only on par with new technologies, but they're part of new technologies. That's why the government's got access to everything uh, that you do. But it says here, The government CIO 50 finding ways to plough through such obstacles in their pursuit of higher returns. One of the CIOs on our list, Roger Baker of Veterans Affairs, uses metrics-driven reviews to assess IT initiatives at the agency, making adjustments where needed and pulling the plug on others. So they can can literally not just upgrade their own equipment and systems and so on, but pull the the plug on other ones. That includes information on it too. So it will be always changing. This other article... Uh, it's quite interesting as well, because it says, "Is your TV watching you?" The latest models raise concerns. This is a joke, actually. It's not a joke because you see, they've had this, this gadgetry in your TVs since the 1960s. But so it says the new Samsung HD TV has hardwired camera and microphone inside it, plus facial recognition and other unprecedented features. Are you beginning to understand? Why the, the governments of the world mandated that they all go digital for television. I mean, when does governments, we're all asking that at the time, when does government care about how comfortable you are? Are you getting the best TV quality or in? No, no, no. Nothing happens on this scale with a government mandate unless it's going to be of benefit to the government and probably essential. So this new one's got hardwired camera and microphone, plus facial recognition and other p- unprecedented features. The Samsung's 2012 top-of-the-line plasmas and LED's HD H- H- TVs offer new features never before available within a television, including a built-in internally wired HD camera. This is uh, twin microphones, face tracking and speech recognition. While these features give you unprecedented control over an HDTV, the devices themselves, more similar than ever to a personal computer, may allow hackers or even Samsung to see and hear you and your family and collect extremely personal data. It also means that they'll have every visitor to your house, and so on and so on and so on. While web cameras and internet connectivity are not new to HDTVs, the complete integration is, and it's always uh, connected camera and microphones combined with the option of third-party apps not to mention Samsung's own software gives us cause for concern regarding the privacy of TV buyers and their friends and families. I wouldn't cons- be concerned about it. They'll still buy them. They'll still buy them. <laughs> you know that, folks, don't you? Yeah, they'll buy them. Uh, and you can't help these people. Bring your standard in a totalitarian system. Back with more after this break. Folks, I'm back cutting through the matrix, talking about the totalitarian system we live in, and we get the carrot and stick approach, you know, oh, if you've got the latest gadget, oh yeah, well, well oh, oh, there's the next one coming up, got to get that too, and it's just carrot and stick, carrot and stick the whole time, or the mouse traps the cheese on it until you get to the big one, and that's a cage, you know, and you're stuck inside of it. But anyway, this has been going on for years, this stuff here, about the the TV spying on the public, because Marshall McLuhan uh, talked to a professor who told me that uh, Marshall McLuhan would never talk uh, if there's a TV um, on in any particular room in anywhere he visited, and he would demand it be unplugged and all the rest of it, because he said... Back in that time, back in the 1960s, it says there were actually spy cameras inside the tubes of the things. So uh, this is an old technique. Government has never missed a trick to do with spying on the public. They can't, so they lose control. They always want to know, as I read the other day from George Orwell, what you're thinking. What you're thinking 24 hours a day. We prattle off what we're thinking 24 hours a day because people can't shut up. They're always yapping on cell phones and stuff and texting each other. So the government's got a great time today. Great time. So it says here it's got facial recognition software built into it and and so on. And it says, unlike other TVs which have cameras and microphones as add-ons, accessories connected by a single easily removable USB cable, you can't just unplug these sensors. And during the demo, unless the facial recognition learning feature was activated, there's no indication as to whether the camera, such as a red light, uh, and audio mics are on you, so you don't know. And as far as the microphone is concerned, uh, there's no way to physically disconnect it or be assured it's not picking up your voice when you didn't intend it to. Samsung does provide the ability to manually reposition the TV's camera away from the viewers. There'll be some other... understand, here's another con that they use. They tell you what's in it, because they know you'll find out eventually. But uh, they don't try to buy a second one somewhere else, you see, that you don't see. That's a very common thing that they do. So it says, uh, it says here that the LED TV models allow you to, to manually point it upwards facing the ceiling, and the plasma's camera can be re-aimed to capture objects in the rear of the TV, according to Samsung uh, spokesperson. And it can be updated, et cetera, with software, which means that the government itself or government agencies can also update the darn thing while you're using it uh, remotely as well. And uh, so there you go. And people will want this, they'll want it, yeah, because it's got voice. Anyway, you tell it what to do, and you'll, oh, what fun, what fun, for about five minutes until you're bored with it and you want something else. But anyway, that's how it works in totalitarian societies. And then getting into, again, the carrot stick, you know, getting acclimatized to things, the cheese, you know, and the trap and all that. And, And then comes the smart meters, and everybody's oh, you know, so you talk about safety and all the rest of it. And once you're kind of used to it, and it kind of dies away because the media are told don't cover so much uh, to do with anything to do with the, uh, the Wi-Fi and uh, uh, anything like that. So they, it dies away, you see. So the White House Green Button Initiative, Eyes Electricity Savings, eh? green buttons, is that nice? It's an effort to help people manage electricity usage expands, you see. So it's got backing from nine utilities. That's the big companies that want them in. Uh, developer challenge from the DOE and third party web and mobile apps, it says. A White House call for power companies to help people, to help people, is to help people, you see, in the United States better manage their electricity usage uh, and energy usage uh, uh, and, their, and their bills, of course. It's expanding with new support from the private sector and government agencies. Let's go back to the government agencies, you know, the ones I mentioned at the beginning uh, with their chief information officers and other technology experts and, and all the rest of it. So uh, this is all part of a big, big pre-planned plan, obviously. <laughs> and it says, um, so they're going they're going at it for you. So eventually it says here, um, a White House call for that comes to helping people and so on. It says um, nine utilities and electricity suppliers will now allow people to view their electricity usage electronically. So now you're going to be you, you start to make you obsessed about your electricity usage because they'll keep getting in touch with you. And that's you know punch up your screen. They're contacting you directly to tell you how much you're using. Isn't that wonderful? And it's got a little green button. Initiatives no, so named because it allows people to see this information by clicking a green button on a website. The government officials said in the green button effort by making their customers' energy usage information available uh, so people can quickly make informed decisions about how to better use their power. Again, it's Pavlov, Pavlovian training, folks. And it'll work, you know, and people will sort of be prattling about it too because at first they get kind of nervous about these things. Oh, did you get contacted by the government? About your, oh, yeah, I did, I did. Oh, what did you say to them? Well, they, they told me cut back on this and that. What did you do? Oh, I did, I did. Oh, I better do it too then. And, and that's how it works with the general population, you see. He says, what what about the Fed's energy habits? So let's see how many, uh, how much energy they claim they're using in federal government departments. Well, that would be a lot, you see. So the move is part of a larger op- open data strategy. That's your open data, your clear government, you see is to help you. Announced by President Obama on his first day of office, that has been the linchpin of the administration's efforts to promote government transparency. What it does is make your house transparent to the government. The Feds modelled green button after a similar initiative called blue button that lets people click a button online to view Personal health data that's to help you, you see. And share it with healthcare providers, that's the big corporations that start bombarding you emails and sending you you know cheap crutches and things, and other trusted health partners, you see? And mind you too, there'll be a red button for the dissenters. You know what happens when you press that one. <laughs> Back with more after this.
0: Listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth.
1: Hi, folks, I'm Alan Watts, and this is Cutting Through the Matrix and talking about the totalitarian systems that we're in and how. Uh, it, everything's presented to you as, a, as something that you want Or oh, you've got to get this, it's the latest, whatever And how it's really all set out to, to make sure that you're the mouse in the cage And you've got lots of uh, cameras pointed at you And even little things picking up your thoughts and your habits and everything else uh, That's really what it's all about, you see For a, a scientific system to be in power forever Forever, you see that kind of system can never be overthrown. And that's, again, what what uh, Aldous Huxley talked about in Brave New World Revisited. And it says, uh, this is a kind of non story. U.S. resurrects shuttered uh, Bush administration total information awareness data mining program. I don't think it ever went away. I don't think it ever went away. But it says it resurrects the Bush administration's total information awareness, data mining program, and it relaxes the limits of use of data and terror analysis. Well, they've never uh, had limits on anything at that level. Never, ever. But it says that the Obama administration is moving to relax restrictions on how counterterrorism analysts may retrieve, store, and search information about Americans gathered by government agencies for purposes other than national security threats. So it's, it's for everybody, right? Attorney General Eric Holder Jr. on Thursday signed new guidelines for the National Counterterrorism Center, which, which created, was created in 2004 to foster intelligence sharing and serve as a, a terrorism threat clearinghouse. The guidelines will lengthen to five years from 180 days, the amount of time the center can retain private information about Americans when there is no suspicion that they are tied to terrorism. Intelligence office, officials said. So it's for everybody. And don't you believe there's any time limit so they can't keep this stuff? So the guidelines are also expected to result in the centre making more copies of entire databases and data mining them, using complex algorithms to search for patterns that could indicate a threat. I guess your TV will help them as well. But um, it's a kind of non-story because they've always been doing this stuff, you see. Always. Always been doing this stuff. And... I've said for ages, you see, because the Royal Institute for International Affairs set up many front groups which belonged to them. They were theirs. And the members belonged to the Royal Institute for International Affairs, Council on Foreign Relations. And the the ones for the Pacific, which they set up in the 1920s and 30s to work to make the the Pacific, region or the Far Eastern, I should say, um, to amalgamate the countries way down the road, like today, you see, like China, Australia, New Zealand, and a whole bunch of other ones. And we know that um, the Prime Minister of Australia now, that's bringing in the carbon taxes and making the country destitute, you see, uh, and giving lots of deals to China, uh, has called this the new Asian century. And here they go, because the banks are now uh, making ties. The central banks of Australia and China are starting to make ties together. They always start off with ties. They've got certain terminology they use for that. It says the RBA Governor Glenn Stevens and, and you know, Bank of China Governor Zhu Zuo uh, Xun signed the currency deal in Beijing on Thursday. Australia become more enmeshed, enmeshed. You see, uh, that's another term they use with the EU every time they sign a, a new treaty with them. In the Asian financial zone, after the Reserve Bank signed a $30 billion currency swap agreement uh, arrangement with the Chinese central bank yesterday, it's a historic agree- agreement, the first of its kind. You see. New Zealand will follow suit. It says the historical agreement highlights the important role Australia is playing in what Gillard movement calls the Asian century as the world's fastest growing major economy integrates into global trade and financial markets. Integrates is an interesting word too. The agreement signed Beijing by the Reserve Bank of Australia, Governor Glenn Stevens, and People's Bank of China, Governor Zhu Yishan, follows Beijing's decision last November to allow uh, convertibility between Australian dollars and Chinese yuan in the interbank market in China. So that, again, was part of the the idea they had 100 years ago. 100 years ago. But the guys at the Royal Institute of International Affairs that said they'd make three main trading blocks the whole of Europe would eventually expand for the continent you see uh, North American uh, integration American continent integration and then one the last one would be the Far East and here we are it's just coincidence though isn't it just coincidence I also put up tonight too uh, a video for, from the, the Council on Foreign Relations that's the Orange of International Affairs by the by, by another name just like a rose you see and they had their Council of Councils meeting. All their other councils across the world uh, are on board together getting their marching orders. And they've got the head of the World Bank there now uh, giving a talk uh, with the ideas for the future, for more integration, more power dominance, uh, and so on. Incredibly powerful organization. It's the, big, the biggest think tanks advising every country in the world as to what to do. And they you, you don't just advise, when they come out with their stuff, it's, governments do what they're told. <laughs> but, but every Prime Minister is a member, and every President is a member. And has been for since the late 1800s, when it was called a different name. And um, another one I want to pick up tonight too, is What's Up With That, or What's Up With That? And it's about Moncton's uh, Schenectady Showdown. It says, uh, Lord Moncton was to give his Climate of Freedom lecture at Union College in Schenectady, New York, and it thrown the university's environmentalists into a turmoil. The campus environmentalists set up a Facebook page announcing a counter-meeting of their own immediately following Moncton's lecture. There is is no debate about global warming, they announced. There is a consensus. The science is settled. Their meeting uh, would be addressed by professors and PhDs, and true scientists, no less, and it sparks, it seems, where sparks were going to fly. So it's fantastic, because Moncton demolished them, all of them, and had them all agaga, you know, uh, at what he actually said. Because he, he knows his stuff, and he knows his facts, and even the professors, he, he outwitted them by using facts once again. A uh, very good article, well, and worth reading as well. Whether it'll do any good, I don't know, because this is the big world mandate, of course, as we well know. And it's one of the main techniques to bring us down into austerity and depopulation and eventually sterilization to save the planet, you see. And in fact, I think Australia also, I don't know there was definitely talking about penalizing people with more children than two per family, following China's route at one child per family. So, well, they, they consume all that. You know, they breathe out CO2, for goodness sake. Can't have that. So, everything that happens in the world. Even the things that get you uh, all riled up and you become an advocate for somebody else's idea. Uh, it's, it's all given to you. It's all given to you. The greatest way, of course, is to get you emotionally involved. Emotionally involved and then they present the heroes for you to follow. And you do. You follow them and you parrot them. And youngsters are very good for it. You always get the youngsters at university. And there's always specific, uh, either CIE appointed ones or definite, definite globalist ones appointed to every university to get the students riled up to tell them what to protest about, you see. They've done that for a 100 years, too. Uh, so... People never stand back and look at the data for themselves or even question beyond if I'm being used, what are they using me for? What is their real agenda? Because they never read the past, you see. Then They never read about the past, They're the big boys, about depopulation, too much of the cattle at the bottom. Uh, or David Suzuki, for instance, the guy who loves nature, who's actually a eugenicist and, and a geneticist. You see, you cannot be a geneticist without taking all your eugenics courses. It's all based on eugenics. And um, and and Suzuki uh, just recently uh, got in hot water again uh, on his particular attacking Canada and so on, and trying to close down our energy supplies in Canada with all this outside funding he's getting. You know, from Soros, probably, and other people like that. I'd imagine. Well, not just Soros, but uh, a few other outside ones. Soros is involved in these things, by the way. Big, big globalist. But um, as I say, nothing out there. Oh, he's the one in Suzuki. It says Suzuki versus the Senate. Who's silencing whom? It says, radical environmentalists tend not to be famous for their objectivity or sense of irony. Canada's most famous eco-activist, David Suzuki, I'll put that link up again, where you'll see him uh, when he was at university teaching the students, that humanity are all maggots. Maggots, he says. There's four levels of maggots, he said. that the, the bottom two levels of maggots live on the poop from the ones above. So I guess he's up there somewhere pooping us on us all because he obviously sees himself as a superior type of maggot with better genes, you know. Anyway, proved it this week by organising a writing campaign to protest a Senate inquiry into foreign institutional funding of Canadian political activism. You see, and that's where they're getting all their money—it's from these big foundations. They're pushing all oh, global warming, and carbon taxes, and. The Green Agenda depopulation. Independent researcher Vivian Cross unearthed more than $300 million of such eco-laundering, they call it, from other countries in Canada, which has been used to campaign against the British Columbia fish farming and bring the Canadian forestry industry to heel. Recently, both Prime Minister Stephen Harper and Natural Resources Minister Joe Oliver fingered foreign funding in clogging up the regulatory process for the proposed Northern Gateway pipeline, the latest uh, front in the green energy's war against the oil sands. The Suzuki to Senate form emailed uh, ventriloquized uh, that robo senders were disappointed by the recent attempts of some senators to silence and demonize those who don't share their positions. It suggested that the Conservative Senators, led by Nicole Eaton, were trying to stifle the voices of millions of Canadians. In fact, silence and demonise could be the Suzuki Foundation's motto. On its website, right beside Tell the Senate to Stop Silencing Environmental Groups, sits a piece by Mr. Suzuki with the headline, Climate Change Denial Isn't About Science or Even Skepticism. The same article was recently published in the Huffington Post under the headline, Deny Deniers Their Right to Deny. You see, liberals are often good at that. They're good at telling you, "Oh, we're liberal. You know, everybody should have a voice and everything." Except when you when you don't agree with them, then they don't want you have any voice at all. And then when they get in power, they literally pass laws so you can't even speak about things. It says there is no more objectionable term for legitimate skepticism than denial, which equates honest questioning with bammy claims that, that the Holocaust never took place. The Puffington article is, however, fascinating because it implicitly acknowledges that the Kyoto policy juggernaut has come off the rails, so Mr. Suzuki changes tack. What if the science isn't settled? Uh, And such a ridiculous idea, though that still is, asks Mr. Suzuki. How can we keep relying on finite fossil fuels and thus robbing the future? We need big plans. Well, who's we? Such Malthusian Hui confirms that Mr. Suzuki is blind to history and utterly clueless about how markets work. Just look at the actual results of the government-mandated global green shift, collapsing wind and solar industries, threats of trade war over the EU's plans to force emissions trading on foreign airlines, President Obama backpedalling furiously over Keystone XL in the face of soaring gasoline prices. Meanwhile, Mr. Suzuki's idea of scientific argument, his piece links to a news story about a study that suggests that denial is a function of being a conservative white male. I suggest Mr. Suzuki try that theory on fearless blogger and fierce critic of the UN's intergovernmental panel on climate change, uh, Donna laferme Meanwhile, if you want to understand climate issues, according to Mr. Suzuki, don't even think of visiting the websites of dissenters such as Anthony Watts, creator of What's Up With That? So anyway, as I say, there's a massive, um, a lot of things that they get through politically is through massive pressure by, again, non-governmental organizations that are run by the big, big foundations that dish out billions and sometimes trillions of dollars across the planet to their armies of non-governmental organizations to protest stuff, to bring us all into line with the global policy of, no work, uh, austerity, which is poverty, and the, the back to nature nonsense. You understand you have to fight nature. Nature will kill you if you don't. That's why you have a house. To heat yourself and protect yourself from the elements, for an example. But these characters are using all this as a front. They don't believe in that at all. They believe in eugenic superior types for the future. And in a post-industrial society, you don't need all the useless eaters. And it was Bertrand Russell who first used that term, the useless eaters, the ones who have no purpose anymore. Remember, as I said, Baron Shaw, I've mentioned it many, many times, not now other people are repeating it, I mentioned that when we are in power, the socialists in the Fabian society, you'll come to us and you'll have to justify why we should let you exist. Because you have to only exist to serve the system, you see. And Suzuki certainly belongs to that category of Fabianism. Sarkozy himself, um, visiting hate and terror websites will be punished, he says. So uh, President Nicolas Sarkozy is seen making a statement on French national television from the Elysee Palace in, uh, in Paris. I always like that Elysee because it's, it's the field of Ulysses. Understand uh, after the revolution, for those who know their history, it, it was the field of Ulysses where they lit it up with all the lights and tried to reenact, and they all dressed up and everything, thousands of them after the revolution uh, to, to reenact uh, the big ceremonies of uh, uh, the, the, the Elysian Fields, uh, as they call them. So it's quite interesting. But that's just by the by. And um, this is France's president Nicolas Sarkozy. It makes a statement on national French television. From the palace, etc. And um, it'd be interesting too what they start banning because you understand under under hate or extremism, you, you can silence lots of contrary opinions and everything. In a free society, it doesn't matter who they are; they've got to be able to see what they think, even if they're nuts. And you leave it up to the public to decide if they're nuts or not. And even from nuts, you get some you know, good little nuggets but sometimes once in a while because they're not thinking in a linear fashion, like all the conditioned people out there. So they've got to eventually uh, keep expanding their lists of people that you're not to listen to. And then, then they're threatening to you if you look at their websites that they're going to punish you as well. Punish you? Is that what the government's there? For? To punish people like little children? Hmm? It never ends, does it? Just expand it and expand it and expand it. And um, and then too, if you, if you only look at someone preaching hatred and violence, that then you cannot leave out any exception, including the ones that's getting preached against. Look at everybody. Look at everything. Look at, you never take the word of anybody. Look at everything and make your own decisions. Isn't that fair? This has nothing to do with fairness, isn't it? Now Monsanto, that's, that's got the contract apparently by, from the big boys to feed the world their poison, and bring in the population. But the elite don't eat it themselves. In fact, the Monsanto staff don't eat uh, their own uh, poisonous stuff. They won't eat it in all their cafeterias, their big plants. Uh, they bring in cuisine that only uses organic stuff only. They won't use their own stuff to eat. It has to be organic and non-GM. So in Monsanto's biotechnology book for children, caught brainwashing children. They brought a book out to make sure children get at school, so they'll grow up loving they're green poisons made by Monsanto I'll put that link up tonight too all these links will go up tonight at CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com. back after this message Hi folks, I'm back cutting through the matrix and just before I go to a caller um, I'll, I'll also toss this one in two, and it's a PDF, and it's from uh, the government, U.S. government, and it's the INSA, Intelligence and National Security Alliance. And that will fit in with the, the ones I gave you at the beginning on the broadcast to do with chief int- uh, information uh, officers and so on, uh, because it's all integrated, you see. We're all integrated to, across the whole planet, to be honest with you. But this is a a, a smart change task force, it's called, and what they mean by smart change. And so all I do with us, of course, all the ones at the bottom that pay for all this and get them nice, secure, and and, uh, lives with a wonderful lifestyle. So uh, I'll go now to Luke from from Vermont, if he's still on the line there. Hello? Hello, Luke? Uh,
0: uh, Hello? Yes, go ahead. Okay, sorry. Uh, I was just, I I wonder if uh, the reasons that Alexander Solzhenitsyn chose to live in my hometown, which is in Cavendish, uh, have something to do with some of the reasons why I don't really buy the establishment lines over global warming. Mm -hmm. And uh, that leads into my um, topic, which I want to bring up, which is a story from high school. And then I'd like to ask a question afterwards, if you wouldn't mind.
1: Sure, go ahead. Um,
0: In high school, my sociology teacher was teaching our class uh, about how we have to fight global warming. Mm-hmm. With carbon taxes, and after class i uh confronted her a little bit and um I actually got her to admit that her real opinion on the matter is that um uh, we should be paying carbon taxes to redistribute wealth yes yeah, right. and to yep. and to make equality in the world, so she's openly lying to the class, which is pretty interesting i thought hmm and um so I just wanted to bring that up, and uh, I wanted to ask you about something that kind of confuses me, because I've been listening for about a year and a half, and I've heard you say a couple times that we're post-democratic. Yeah. And then I've also heard uh, that we've never had democracy.
1: Well, we never really had. We, we, had, to, we had the, the See, democ- democracy simply means that you're allowed to vote for whomever they present to you to vote for. That's all it means. You have no recall afterwards if they go off on a different track. And that was actually admitted in in Canada, in the government of Canada, uh, that uh, once you vote them in, they can do whatever they want. It doesn't matter what they said they'd do. Uh, So democracy simply is no different than the communist system of Politburo number 123. Which one do you want? It's the same thing. But we were, we were though, we were given more of a chance to do different things ourselves without less, without government interference in our lives. Uh, that's the big difference between, say, the 1970s or 60s to, to the present. And now it's, it's, the government wants to know everything about us all the time. So it's a farce even you call it democracy. Uh, demo, what does really democracy mean? Uh, you're supposed to get people who represent you. Uh, People have never had anybody that's represented them since the American Revolution, basically. And um, it's the same in Britain and elsewhere. Um, It's a very tightly controlled system government, very tightly controlled, and who gets into it? And then you find that Carl Quigley of the CFR, the historian, says that there's not been an American president who's not been a member ever elected, there hasn't been a member of this particular organisation since the late 1800s, and they said Prime Minister is two in Britain. So, you see, we're being fooled at every step. Uh, and, of course, the last thing they want to tell you is, yes, we are totalitarian. That's the last thing they want to tell you. Because voting is, is the only means to let off the steam in the public when they're ticked off the party that's in, and then they vote another party and, 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 and beg them in hope they're going to get something better. That's it stops revolutions. That's what it does. But thanks for calling, from Hamish Macleod from Ontario, Canada. It's good night to me. Your God or your gods go with you.